the vital way. Where ancient wisdom meets the cutting edge to optimize your vitality and performance. There are no right ways, just better ways. Welcome everyone, this is Logan Christopher with the Vital Way Podcast. Uh, we have another exciting interview lined up for you here today. Uh, on the call is Dr. Chris Hardy. He is an emerging as a leader in public health, merging his expertise in nutrition, strength and conditioning, and in clinical and preventive medicine into a comprehensive approach to treat chronic disease. He has a diverse background, including 13 years active military service in both the U.S. Army and Navy, serving as a military deep-sea diver and much more, bachelor degree in biochemistry, doctor of osteopathic medicine, chief resident at John Hopkins School of Public Health, formal training in medical acupuncture, certified strength and conditioning specialist, and really much more, but I think you get the point. And I had the pleasure of meeting Chris at uh, the recent Dragon Door Health and Strength Conference, where we were both speakers, and I was very impressed with what he covered, so I decided to ask him here on the call. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure, Logan. I appreciate it. All right. Well, I definitely, over the course of this call, I think we're going to dive into some nitty-gritty details, but I'd like to start with a bit of uh, the bigger picture. If you could sum it up, what would you say is your overall health philosophy? Yeah, wow, that's that's not, not an easy <laughs> question to answer. No, it, in general, it's, you know, I think there's so much more we could really do with prevention uh, mm -hmm. that really, I mean, we all give lip service to it, but I don't think it's really, you know, really followed. I, I think we rely way too much on pharmaceuticals and quick fixes, and it's not just the industry, it's um, the consumer, too, and the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've become very passive patients. So my philosophy is really to get people active into their own health care, I mean, as true partners. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be just... A, you know, almost a victim of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's the underlying philosophy is becoming and, – and to become an active partner, you really have to educate yourself. And, you know, that was the whole reason I wrote the book. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I've definitely thought about that myself. It's really kind of in our culture. Like you're saying, it's not just the sort of establishment's fault, but we've been sort of led to believe that, you know, our health is up to the doctor. Yeah. It's something, it's abdicated responsibility that we don't have it for ourselves. But uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a flaw in that. So I, I, I very much agree with your philosophy there. I, I'm curious, what led you on this path of health. I mean, you've covered all this different ground. So what really got you started and how did you, you get to where you are today? You mean in medicine? Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. You'll be sorry you asked this question. So, um, actually I had no plans at all of going into medicine. Mm -hmm. I was really happy as a, as a military diver. Um, it really, uh, it's kind of what I wanted to do for a while. Um, and, uh, actually got injured, um, about three years into it, um, as a young guy and, um, kind of had to start looking at other options. And actually part of my job as a diver was running hyperbaric, uh, chambers, which, you know, we treat diving injuries, you know, decompression sickness and stuff like that. But we also treat, um, uh, for local hospital patients that were getting, you know, burn patients and people were getting skin grafts and stuff like that. So I had the chance to interface with a couple doctors while I was running the chamber. And, 
one of them encouraged me like, hey, man, you know, you seem to have a scientific aptitude. Have you ever considered going into medicine? And, you know, I said, well, no, I hadn't. <laughs> so, you know, I, I ended up getting out of the military the first time after four years and starting school relatively late at 25 for my undergrad. And as soon as I got into the biochem curriculum, I was kind of fascinated. The science is what really drove me into it. And then um, it just kind of snowballed from there. And I kind of along the way, like many of us through med school, I changed my mind a billion times about what I wanted to do. And I kind of landed in public health um, because, you know, not that I don't do clinical medicine, but um, I, I think the biggest impact is what we can have in the public health arena instead of just in the trenches, uh, you know, doing doing primary care medicine mm-hmm. for me anyway. And so and, and then I've always been um, on the on the parallel to that. I've always been a trainer since I was a diver. You know, we had to have top physical fitness basically just to do our job. I mean, it's underwater construction. It's basically what we did. And uh, you, you have to be in really good shape to, you know, drag around. um you know, heavy uh, hydraulic tools and all the stuff we used uh, and just slug around with the suits. It's just it's hard. But I, I kind of got put in charge of training, um, physical training of the my uh, uh, fellow divers. And that was really challenging. So I'm like, well, gosh, how do I how do I learn how to be a trainer? And I actually did that. I started on that course about 10 years before I even became an actual physician. So I've always been both on the fitness side uh, and on the health side, really just interested in the human body and how to better it. So, I mean, I hope that answers your question. I mean, there's so many tangents I could go off on. Right. Well, I'm I'm curious because, uh, as I said in that intro, you've really done all these different things from going deep with biochemistry to acupuncture. Yeah. Uh, how do you sort of bring all these together? Because, I don't know, there's definitely – a time and a place for a specialist in like a single area, yeah. but also with that, you kind of lose that bigger picture. Oftentimes that's what I've seen. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do these things go together for well, you? Well, for me, uh, that's an awesome question because I, I thought, you know, the stuff that we don't learn well in medical school, uh, mm-hmm. nutrition <laughs> and exercise yeah. tend to have the largest impact on our health which doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense at all. Why wouldn't we get education? And I could go off on all this conspiracy theories and why I might think that. But mm-hmm. but anyway, um, that's what I chose to focus on. And, you know, from the clinical side, um, the musculoskeletal medicine is really, we do a poor job of it in the United States. You know, people have surgeries all the time, but how many, how many physicians are adept at um, doing good non-surgical musculoskeletal care. That's what drove me into the osteopathic profession. We get a little more training in that. Um, But, you know, the acupuncture, my manual medicine stuff I do, and my exercise all goes together and is very cohesive into, you know, helping people get through injuries and not have to resort to surgery. And then, you know, the on the other aspect of it, the nutrition and exercise also go into, you know, preventing chronic disease in the first place. I think that they all go into, um, you know, attacking the problems head on instead of throwing pharmaceuticals at them. That's kind mm-hmm. of how, everything I've pursued really goes along that line. So really, how, how can and how can we empower the patient? How can we really keep them out of our offices and not, you know, 
being reliant on us. So every little thing I've picked up has to go with that, you know, whether it's acupuncture, which is, you know, which is a great adjunct to musculoskeletal stuff, nutrition training, all that is to that end to, to really help us, uh, you know, stay away from the specialists. You know, we need them every once in a while. You know, we need emergency medicine. We need that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it does wonderful things. But as far as chronic preventive, you know, chronic diseases, I, I think there's, in, in general musculoskeletal care, um, we can do a much better job. And that's kind of what I try to tackle and why I do what I do. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree there. Western medicine, it's really great in the cases of acute trauma. Yep. Uh, like surgery, I mean, life-saving definitely has its place in pharmaceuticals as well. But, yeah, the whole chronic disease thing, it's really, you know, kind of pitiful in a lot of places and you realize that it's really missing so many components. I was just at an herbalism class this past uh -huh. weekend and uh, talking about how you can deal with pain. Yep. You know, the, the whole pharmaceutical just throw drugs at it, kill the pain, but right. uh, really with the, the sort of vitalist herbalist approach, you know, looking what's behind that pain and you have all these different ways you can yeah. work with it besides just, you know, painkillers. <laughs> so, no, it's so, so uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So you, along with Marty Gallagher, you wrote a book, well, more like a large tome called Strong Medicine, <laughs> and it's almost like 600 pages. I'm about 200 pages into it, and I, I just think it's fantastic. I really admire that you're able to cover a lot of the detail without making it overly scientific, right. and your use of, you know, like metaphor, basically stories, getting people to understand how you do it. I really admire how you've done that in that book. Uh, and like I said, a lot of detail as well as, you know, not being overly technical. So what led you specifically to writing this book? Yeah, again, I didn't set out to write a book. It was funny. <laughs> I um, actually, out of out of necessity, so when I was in the military, you know, seeing patients, you know, and, you know, in our, even in the military, in our, our uh, modern medical establishment, basically we have, you know, maybe 15, maybe if you're lucky, 30 minutes to see a patient. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of them would say, well, hey, doc, I, you know, what can I do to get healthy? And I'm like, wow, there's so much, right? But what can I impart in that small time I see you? So I started developing patient handouts on different topics like sleep, nutrition, exercise, and those handouts started becoming huge. <laughs> <laughs> and I started diving into the literature again, right? This and saying, well, you know, what's the science actually show? Let's get a scientific foundation instead of taking what you know, is out there in conventional wisdom, right? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and critically examine some of these things. And, wow, I went down that rabbit hole, basically. And I it turned into this huge, you know, the you know, I, I think I generated like 20 of these handouts, right? And I was like, wow, you know, I should put these all together. But now I need a way to tie it together. And um, so it's it slowly, then I started talking with Marty, who's an amazing writer, if you guys haven't read you know, anything that he's put out and he's, he kind of, I said, Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's work on this together. He really helped a lot with um, the, you know, okay, we're, what are we trying to say? How can we do this in a cohesive manner? Um, and obviously he added an amazing amount to the um, expertise to the uh, weight training, but, mm -hmm. but he's much more than that. I mean, he, he really, really helped, uh, help me get those messages across and, and, uh, you know, I, I like to use a lot of pictures, as you probably imagined in the book. And so mm -hmm. that was really important for both of us to, and he acted as a sounding board and said, you know, okay, well, 
I see what you're trying to say, but how can we do this simpler, but without losing the meaning of it, you know, still, still have the detail, but not overwhelm people. And that is the hard thing to do. I mean, that's the most challenging (laughs) thing of the book, right? Because Mm -hmm. some people are like, well, it's too basic. Others are like, wow, I don't understand it. And it's like finding that happy medium is really tough. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of, it it wasn't like, oh, wow, I want to write a book. I think it just kind of, it, it was like an organic process just from a need, you know, and it yeah. just kind of blew up there. Yeah. Well, it's uh, very excellent. Like I said, I'm only about a third of the way through it, but I do recommend people that are interested in health. And really, as we were saying before, everyone should have an interest in health because if you just rely on the doctors, you're not going to get too far. Uh, I highly recommend yeah. you check out this book, and we'll include links to it in the show notes and all that. And it's called Strong Medicine. Uh, so some of the things you covered in that book definitely want to talk about. Yeah in more detail i guess one of the first places to start kind of where you start in the book is uh the topic of stress and the analogy of the stress cup uh so can you explain this to people listening and why they should think about stress in these terms yeah yeah so the the stress cup is really a way to simplify a concept called allostatic load really Mm -hmm. what that is it's just a scientific term for if you think about it, your brain and your body have the ability at any one time to successfully adapt to stress because we need stress, right? That's why we do exercise. You know, that's why some of the plants that we eat, they actually create little stress responses and that mm-hmm. they actually um, build up our, uh, our body's defense systems. So we need stress, but we don't need there's – a, there's a limit of what we can take. And stress from all sources, like poor sleep, um, you know, even so-called social psychological stresses of, you know, you have a a boss that's a jerk, you drive in traffic every morning, you you know, you you don't eat well, that type of thing. You're you're working out too little or even too much. It all goes into a all that stress piles up together at any on any given day. And I came up with the concept of, well, let's just make it a cup and think of stress as pouring into the cup and calling it a stress cup. Really, the idea is if you if you pile stress into the stress cup, but you don't overfill it, your body can successfully adapt to that and you don't have any long term problems. But when you start overfilling it, for instance, getting three hours of sleep and then still want to hit a heavy workout and not eat properly, then your body goes into a stress response to try to protect itself. And that's fine from time to time, right? But when you do that constantly, if we're constantly sleep deprived, we constantly have a bad diet, we don't exercise well, um, that creates something called allostatic overload, or simpler terms, overfilling your stress cup all the time. And that actually leads to an overactive stress response, which leads to chronic disease through which we talk about in the book. There's some physiological processes that are underlying how that actually happens. But um, it's a way to look at chronic disease and and managing your stress cup really can keep you out of um, going down that path of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, cancer, even even cancer to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the tie-in between inflammation, which is basically what's said to be at the root of all those diseases you just mentioned, between that and stress? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, inflammation uh, is needed, right? And so just just to backtrack a little bit, we we know that our 
our immune system is, is the primary generator of it. And it's, it's there to, uh, to heal wounds, right? If you're injured and to prevent mm-hmm. and to fight off pathogens like, you know, viruses and, and bacteria. So we need inflammation, but low levels of inflammation all the time are the things that lead to things like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, et cetera, and even uh, help speed some cancers along. Now, chronic stress what it does um, in overflowing the stress cup all the time, it puts us in a low-level flight-or-fight state, which basically is, um, for those of you that know a little bit of neuroscience, the sympathetic nervous system, the flight-or-fight system, instead of being on just to run away from a predator or to you know exercise, instead of being on short periods of time and burst, it's on low levels all the time. And the sympathetic nervous system by itself produces an inflammatory response, which makes sense. You know, if you're injured or you're, you know, it's basically the injury process and the inflammation helps rebuild, right? But you don't want it on all the time. And that's what leads to all these chronic diseases. We're just not wired to have our flight or fight system on all the time. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how stress is directly linked to it. Stre- the, the, the brain and the immune system are linked very, very closely together. I mean, you can't really separate the effects of the two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, a lot of stress is created in our minds. Yeah. It's uh, not necessarily what we do, but how we think about those things that we do. So what are some tips you have on what people can do to sort of shift their mindset to be more stress-free or, you know, lower that load of stress that goes yeah. into the cup. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head. It's not that the stress disappears. It's how we, how we perceive it and how we deal mm-hmm. with it. If it's perceived to be a threat, it's going gonna, it's gonna to put the stress response on. So, you know, you, you have things like worry, you know, worrying about the future and, you know, and rumination, which is, you know, gosh, going over and over that internal dialogue. It's always mm-hmm. running in our heads, right? And we're not in the moment, right? And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is very simple concept of mindfulness. Actually, okay, let's let's slow down. Let's let's uh, get rid of that internal dialogue for a while, and let's just be here, experiencing where we're at in the moment. You know, a lot of people do it through different ways, through meditation, um, breathing practices, yoga, tai chi, whatever it is to get that. Um, you know, I, I wrote in in the blog recently on Dragon Door about mind monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just chattering in your head. You know, it's whatever you can do to quiet those down. And usually, it's paying attention to something in the present moment. Your body, how your body's functioning, something where you're not um, worrying or ruminating about things. Um, and that sounds real easy, but it's very, very difficult if you've ever tried to even count 10 breaths without letting some intrusive thought kind of take over, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's that mindfulness practice that we go over in the book, just very, very simple. Even start with breathing practice. Um, you you work out like you do it like you work out. You start slowly and build build with it because you're really rebuilding your brain. A chronically stressed brain is structurally and functionally different than one that isn't, um, which is kind of a new concept over the last 10 or 15 years, that these brains have actually changed and you can actually change them back. So that through neuroplasticity, some of your listeners may have 
you know, I, I know you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you're all about that. So, yeah, so the first tip is basically find some type of mindfulness practice. Um, and it's amazing how much more resilient you become to not having uh, when, when those stresses do come up. It's like, yeah, they're still there, but you're not reacting to them quite as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing about sort of early on when I was studying the subject of stress is that we seem to, and this this happens in nature in different areas, but uh, at a certain point we can kind of build up to a stress and then maybe break through to another level where stuff that used to bother us just no longer seems to have that the same effect yep. as it did before. And like you're saying, mindfulness practices or a variety of other ways this can help us to do that. Um, Lately, I was, I was, I'm writing an article, kind of a thought experiment about achieving ideal health, what that would actually look like if you had a person that was ideally healthy throughout his life or her life, of course. And this idea of stress, you know, a lot of people on the surface might think that, oh, the person wouldn't have any stress. But, of course, we know that wouldn't be allostatic. Like not having any stress would be probably even worse than too much stress. Uh, you wouldn't even get up in the morning. You wouldn't grow in any sort of way. So that wouldn't be useful. Uh but if you have a person that's ideally healthy, like has all the nutrition, is doing all the foundational basics, hydration, sleep, and all that, that this person could actually handle a whole lot of stress, in which case the resiliency and adaptability would just continue to get better and better. Uh, do you have any comments yeah, on that? Yeah, you just said the key word. It's resilience, basically, and you, you build this over time. Um, and mm-hmm. it's through experience. It's basically framing weight things and things that used to be stressful. It's kind of like... When my daughter started college, she was uh, she has a, had a tough major, geophysics, very science intensive, math intensive. And you know, when her first final came as a freshman year, you know, she's freaking out about finals, right? Mm-hmm. On her second year of grad school, six years later, she's like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like, okay, another final. I know what to do. It's that experience of success and um, adapting to something creates resilience. Mm-hmm. And that is through experience. So uh, yeah, we we need we need those stresses in in amounts to you know to create to create that resilience you're talking about, and that ideally healthy person would have the resilience, the ability to adapt, which is basically their stress cup has gotten bigger. Yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah. So you you mentioned some of the plant compounds like uh, bioflavonoids. They stress the body, in which the body becomes better at ably basically more adaptable, more resilient. Uh, what uh, This is something I meant to talk to you about at the conference yeah. but and didn't have a chance. What's your feeling about adaptogenic herbs and how do these fit into the stress cup picture? Yeah, interesting. So a lot of the adaptogens, um, specifically, um, you know, the panax ginsengs, you know, holy basil, things that are traditional adaptogens, we're really, you know, I've actually studied this, we're, we're really not sure on a molecular basis, how, how they work really. But if you mm-hmm. look at, if you look at plant chemicals in general, the ones that are supposed, you know, that are healthy for us, um, you, you know, that are supposed to be antioxidants, just as to give an example, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a roundabout on your question, but I'm yeah. just using a, I'm using this as an example. So, you know, when you have, um, some of the compounds like sulfur, sulforaphanes, like in broccoli and, um, some of the other phytochemicals in, in green leafy vegetables, especially, um, they actually stress the body's antioxidant defense system and 
and there um, are pathways to detoxify compounds. So they ramp those up. In a test tube, yes, some of them act as antioxidants, but that's not how they work in the body. They actually stress our our system and, and ramp up our antioxidant defense system. So it's through a process called hormesis, which I which we discuss in strong medicine as well, where these little amounts of things that you know could potentially be toxic at high levels um, actually are very beneficial for us. So for adaptogens, you know how they actually the, the thought is that they they work through um, kind of calming or normalizing the hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis, right? And, you know, how they affect that stress response um, is still under a lot of research right now. But I've found personally, I think they work great. I use holy basil myself um, at, at you know, especially when my, my when I think my cortisol is flipped upside down. Um, and I, I think it, they work great. So but but again, you know, they're they're helpful, but you need to do some of the the interventions that are driving some of the problems, right? You know, if you right. if you have chronically bad sleep and you're stressed out of your mind, you can load yourself up on adaptogens all you want, and it's just it's just not going to have the uh, it's not going to have the, they're not going to be magic bullets, in other words. Right. Yeah, it's actually uh, one of my herbalist teachers. He talks about the idea that some people are misusing adaptogens because you often feel energy with their use or something. So if you have that person that has really crappy sleep and they're just loading up on adaptogens yeah. in order to continue doing that and still be able to go about their day and, you know, working too much and all that, that it can drive them a bit further in the hole because they're not addressing those foundational components. That's so true. I always use I always use this analogy, you know, when you have a diabetic and there's a point where they're on a medication now and now their blood sugar is, you know, better. They think, oh, well, this is, I'm good to go now. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, let's address the underlying, because down the line, you're going to end up crashing and burning. You're going to need more and more medications and eventually insulin. The same is true for the herbals. And, you know, I, I not only have I, do I have training in integrative medicine and some actual training in this stuff, but, you know, my wife is going to be a naturopathic physician next year. She's graduating. So mm -hmm. we talk about this stuff all the time. And that's kind of her philosophy as well, too. You know, these should be adjuncts and supportive to your lifestyle interventions. Yeah, I agree completely. So uh, you, you were mentioning insulin there. Let's let's move a bit into nutrition yeah. and how this affects the stress and you know basically everything else in the body. Mm -hmm. uh, and on that topic, uh, could you talk about how each macronutrient, you know, fat, protein, carbohydrates, they trigger the release of different hormones, uh, insulin and glucagon? Uh, could you talk about that? Sure, I can. But you know, and I'll tell you just off the off the bat. I've tried to get away as much as possible from from discussing, you know, food in the context of macronutrients. I mean, yeah. we used to do that all the time. And, you know, I, I think it can really lead us astray. Um, I agree. You're at more like food quality. Yeah. But sure, sure, I'll answer your question, though. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> you know, you know uh, protein in general um, gives, a, gives a, a glucagon response and a little bit of insulin, mm -hmm. right? Fat is pretty neutral um, as far as, you know, our anabolic, um, you know, it doesn't really promote much of an uh, insulin response at all or a glucagon response. 
um, it certainly pr uh, promotes other digestive um, processes like, you know, uh, cholecystokinin and things that help actually emulsify and, and digest the fat. Um, but it's fairly neutral as far as um, that goes, uh, as far as the hormonal, like the insulin glucagon thing. Um, and obviously, carbohydrate, it depends how much insulin um, is needed to store that as how fast, the car what type of carbohydrate, because, you know, fiber is biochemically a carbohydrate, but we don't break it down. Our gut bacteria do. So it's basically insulin neutral. They don't, it doesn't really promote much of an insulin spike where processed, processed grain based carbohydrates, which is basically strung together glucose, um, will promote pretty large insulin secretion. So, I mean, but, but again, it has to do with, your sensitivity to all these things and how fast insulin goes up and then comes back down. I mean, I think we've become so focused thinking that insulin is an evil thing and it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, insulin resistance certainly is. Right. So I, I, I mean, that that's such a uh, complex subject. I mean, is there um, is there any more specifics on those? Uh, well, I, I think we should probably talk more to what you raised as the, the point. We shouldn't really talk about macronutrients so much because uh, that's it's really not the whole picture. You can't – a fat is not a fat. Uh, I can remember looking at a study where they were basically comparing single macronutrient diets in rats and yeah. there's a carbohydrate group, the fat group, and a mixed group. Right. And in the abstract, this was all that was said. And I was it's like, ah, that's, that's not enough detail because the fat's not a fat. So, you know, then I looked into detail on this study and, you know, the fat they're using is corn oil, of course. which, you know, very different from, let's say, fish oil or, you know, actual like a saturated fat from uh, grass-fed quality red Absolutely. meat versus olive oil. You know, everyone is uh, different. And uh, in the the book you were talking about uh, how a group of scientists got together and they're looking at this idea that saturate did fat was evil and basically what was used in all of those many of the studies was a specific type of saturated yep. fat the palmitic acid so can you tell us what is wrong with this what's wrong with that thought process yes oh yeah absolutely <laughs> so for for years uh scientists were when they were doing studies and these were rat studies by the way and my studies on uh, saturated fat Mm -hmm. They were using palmitic acid, which is a 16-carbon saturated fat, for all of their studies. And they were drawing conclusions saying that, say, based on these results, that saturated fat, and that's what it would say, saturated fat is, uh, produces these insulin resistance or an inflammatory response. And, and just demonizing saturated fat in general, it's like, well, wow, that's one saturated fat that's used in isolation, and that's not how we eat things because mm -hmm. the different saturated fats all the way down to, you know, there's short chain, medium chain, long chain. And then within those groups, there's different ones. And each one has a distinct uh, function in the body. They're different chemicals and the body handles them differently. Butyrate, for instance, the four carbon one is very anti-inflammatory. Our colon uses this as a primary energy source. Lauric acid, the 12 carbon one in coconut oil, actually helps with fat loss, is antiviral, um, mm -hmm. you know, has other anti-inflammatory properties against uh, cancer. And, you know, so you, we could go and name each one like that. I can, what I just tried to bring 
the point I was trying to make in the book is, is these are all different. And even palmitic acid, you know, I, I, I think I went a little too far in demonizing palmitic acid in the book, but I was just trying to make the point that that's all they were using. Yes, palmitic acid in high amounts is inflammatory in the body, but it's one of the primary fats. It's your body makes, uh, your body takes carbohydrate, uh, glucose, and will make it into palmitic acid and store it in fat cells. And high levels of palmitic acid in fat cells are looked at as a threat. So it makes sense that when you feed someone straight palmitic acid, it's going to produce an inflammatory response, right? And so, but mm-hmm. we would never eat that way. And so that, I think that was the point I was trying to make. And that group of scientists got together and finally kind of said, Hey guys, look what you guys are doing. You're making, you're making these broad statements about saturated fat. And first of all, you're using an animal model. And secondly, you're using one type of saturated fat in isolation. And, you know, and they, they kind of called them on that, which I thought was, was pretty cool. Yeah. And I have to say it's, you know, that was kind of within the scientific groups, you know, they're looking at all these negative things, the saturated fats, but sort of in the consumer market, like everyone just generalized that even further to say all fat was bad. Oh, and yeah. That's how we got to <laughs> fat-free diets and all that. Oh, gosh. And, you know, and, and those people are very sickly, <laughs> yeah. whether they admit it or not. You know, and then we went to the other direction, you know, and to say that, oh, then the, the polyunsaturated fats are really good for you. So, right. <laughs> oh, there's big differences in those, too. And you only need a small amount of those things. And, yeah. You know, the whole margarine thing. And, gosh, you know. It, it's it's pretty amazing, like, how we got some of the places we got in our science. I, I remember going over a study, and they are talking about uh, – they're basically comparing using uh, butter and other natural oils to like, you know, uh, partially hydrogenated right. oils, margarine and stuff like that in everything. So they're having to make these weird foods that would, you know, they had to like squeeze this in. It's like, how in your right mind could you even possibly begin to think that <laughs> this would be a better option? Well, it just kind of blows my mind that uh, our scientists kind of got into that idea. Well, the problem is, and I, I hit it real early in the book is, we got government involved in food policy, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah. we got, and we have these big, big food manufacturers, you know, just jumping right on board to make. And, and it's not just them; it's it's the convenience, the American, not just the American public, but we're all we all want convenience, and you know, we don't want to prepare food anymore. So, you know, we jumped on board all these products. But you know, anytime you get a government, the government involved with making food policy. And then, you know, the the things that fund scientists, National Science Mm -hmm. Foundation, NIH, things like that, are government organizations as well that are all funded. Um, And what happens over time is that there becomes there's a group think involved where Mm -hmm. you when you jump out of board and say, hey, guys, the emperor has no clothes. You know what I mean? (laughs) That, That they they start they get ostracized and marginalized as scientists from, and they don't get funded and things like that. So when someone jumps up and says, Hey, you know, you know, this, all the saturated fat isn't bad for you. You know, they could just basically, you know, get laughed out of a conference Right. when, you know, so that that's kind of how it happens. It's, it's in, it's this uh, peer pressure kind of group thing, thing that happens. And then when the evidence becomes overwhelming and beats them in the head, Finally, they're like, okay, maybe it's safe to start raising contrary points of view. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything currently these days that is sort of in that same area where fat was, you know, 30, 50 years ago? Yeah, carbs. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Another macronutrient. Go, big surprise, right? Right. Yeah, I totally do. I, I, I do. I think, you know, people are like you know, these low-carb crusaders, which I can tell you, you know, it depends on the context. Uh, someone that has advanced diabetes would do really, really well on a very, very kind of low, and when I say low carb, you know, low starch and sugar, not right. not low fiber because carbohydrates, fiber is a carbohydrate, yeah. right? A, a carb is not a carb, exactly. just like fat exactly. is not a fat. So yeah. I, I, think, <laughs> I think that's gotten, that's the new fat right now. <laughs> right. Right, and it's just, we've gotten so far away from food quality that we're going after macronutrients. Yeah, when really we should be looking at the quality. So that's something that sort of uh, comes up from time to time. It's it's not that carbohydrates are bad. It's not that fat is bad. But really what seems to be the worst culprit in obesity and then kind of leading uh, to weight gain and uh, these this inflammation, uh, chronic diseases, it's the combination of a lot of refined carbohydrates mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, Rancid fat, industrial fat, fat. yeah, and, and, yeah. Uh, a large amounts in a single meal, like is found in fast food, junk food, dessert of most types, and that's what's really going to cause fat to build up in people. So, could you just say a little bit about why it's the combination of these two that really sort of drives that? So basically, so yeah, actually, it. You, I don't think you're there in the book yet. Um, if you haven't gotten to the gut chapter yet, mm-hmm. so. With the, with the, with the, um, we call it acellular carbohydrate. Basically, the carbohydrates has been processed so much that it's, you know, they've blown the cell walls out and they've just, they're basically just collections of glucose. That, um, it promotes, uh, overgrowth of, um, different types of bacteria in our, uh, gastrointestinal tract, um, that aren't so good. I mean, we need a balance of both, right? And but it promotes these things called opportunistic pathogens. They're they're more pro-inflammatory um, uh, microbes, and it creates a condition called dysbiosis, which basically means an imbalance of these uh, gut bacteria. And so th- that type of food is a perfect food source for these to promote this type of uh, imbalance and overgrowth. That itself drives inflammation from the gut. Okay, not to mention that your body needs to do something to to take care of that because glucose left in the bloodstream is toxic. It, mm-hmm. it promotes these things called advanced glycation end products. Basically, the glucose starts being stuck onto proteins, which then the immune system recognizes through various ways as threatening, and it creates an inflammatory response. So your body tries to shuttle that stuff out of the bloodstream as best it can, and the fat cells are really the... It, if it can't get into muscle cells, you know, uh, the idea would be is you, you work out real vigorously, empty the, the, the glucose from your muscle, and now you have this big reservoir to deposit uh, some of the glucose. But if you're not working out and you eat these high-processed foods, your body has to do something with it. And it, so they convert it into fat and try to store it away to, so it's not as toxic, right? The problem is, over time, as the fat cells increase, um, alarm systems start to go off and like, hey, these fat cells are swollen too much. And there's actually something that happens within the fat cell. Um, Some of the immune system that lives in there starts to turn uh, inflammatory. It's like an alarm signal is raised. And really, it's these overstuffed fat cells that many times are from 
uh, eating t- too much of the processed carbohydrate when you don't have anywhere to put it um, mm-hmm. that is driving inflammation. So the fat cell themselves, it's not just something that looks unattractive on you. It is actually a driver of inflammation when they're packed with um, fat, um, which is kind of a new concept as well, too, especially mm-hmm. the fat around the internal organs. You know, the people that look like apples versus pears. Right. right. You know, so those that central obesity really drives inflammation and chronic disease, too. So that's that's kind of how uh, a, a processed carbohydrate does. Now, these these oils, a lot of these polyunsaturated oils that are processed and separated at high heat, you know, those the reason why I went into some chemistry in the book is to show you how all those double bonds are susceptible to oxidation and they become free radicals themselves. And so they, they contribute to oxidative stress. In other words, more free radical formation than the body can actually handle. And that drives inflammation as well. So you, you kind of get this per, fast food is kind of a perfect storm for that. Yeah. yeah. So you, you brought up the, uh, the gut health, which yeah. is uh, such a fascinating area. And it's, it's great to see just more and more science come out about that. And yeah, I have gotten to that section in your book. And you talk about some very cool thing like uh, children on antibiotics had significantly higher risk for bowel problems. Later on. Uh, the lac- yeah, yeah. The lactobacillus bacteria induces the formation of the T regulatory cells that you talk about with the immune system that help kind of. Uh, balance out the more aggressive parts of our immune system. Mm-hmm. So just uh, all kinds of fascinating stuff. Um, just, I guess, sort of as a broad question, what are some of the critical things people need to know about this area? Yeah, so this is, I think this is going to be the, the biggest area of medicine in the 21st century. I, I do mm-hmm. gut health. I mean, we're seeing some just amazing things, even in animal models where you have an obese mouse and you replace it with, and it sounds kind of gross, but you basically replace their, their um, colon contents with, mm-hmm. from a lean mouse and doing nothing else, these mice lose weight. So what it shows us is the balance in the gut bacteria is crucial for actually our own metabolisms and our own health. Um, we talk a lot about the gut-brain connection, right? There's a, mm-hmm. there's a, a direct connection between those. And, and the gut has as many uh, neurons or, you know, uh, nerve cells as the spinal cord does. I mean, it's called the second brain, right? So things mm-hmm. that happen down there are really important to the body. And this natural ecosystem that we have, it's, it's, it's a zoo, so to speak, if you want to use that uh, analogy, um, has to maintain in proper balance. Just like anything else, if you like any other ecosystem, if you kill off too many of one thing, you get an overabundance of the other that's not as good. You know, we have these checks and balances. And a proper balance of uh, bacteria in our in our uh, intestinal tract create uh, really sets the stage um, for our immune system. Since uh, you know, 70 to 80 percent of our immune system actually is lives in the gut. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it it just makes sense that that's a the first place that you should be looking if you have out of control inflammation, are you doing something that is producing inflammation starting in the gut? Since that's the first place we really have contact of the inside of our body from the outside world. Right. And so our immune system's there. So if we get any bacteria in through our food or, you know, it's there to take care of that. But also if it's unhealthy, we're not regulating that inflammatory response well and it can get out of control. 
And that's what we were trying to, what we were talking about. When you have an overgrowth mm-hmm. of one type of bacteria, the, it doesn't trigger, you, you know, you, you trigger more of the uh, militant arm of the immune system and not so much as, you know, I, I, I use the analogy that the cheat reg cells were hippies, right? I'm, but it just, you know, more peace loving, Hey, let's settle down. We need a balance of both. Right. And when we don't have that, um, I, I think the gut is, is a primary place to look. And we, we really have to look at that. But any person with chronic disease, we got, we got to start there and guess what fixes it? The same stuff that fixes everything, right? right. Stress reduction, uh, and nutrition, especially. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a big fan of uh, fermented foods, um, and a, a lot of people go for the probiotics. Can you talk about the, I guess, some of the differences between just taking a pill versus eating a food that you know natural people have eaten since the beginning of time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, this is an interesting thing, and the science isn't quite all there yet. But what what we're seeing in the literature is that. These probiotics, people think, are you know repopulating the gut, and it doesn't appear that they're really doing that. They are having effects on the way through, in other words. So they're stimulating the immune system in ways on the way through that can be beneficial. But really, the way you repopulate the gut is you encourage the growth of the so-called beneficial bacteria, and the way to do that is through fermentable fibers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say we have to distinguish fermented food from fermentable fiber. What I mean by a fermentation process is like any fiber, like a vegetable fiber you eat can't be broken down in the, um, uh, by our digestive system. Normally Uh, we can't use it for glucose, right? So our, the bacteria in our gut will break it down. That process is called fermentation, right? And so out of that, those bacteria as waste products produce beneficial products for us, like mm-hmm. butyrate and things like that. Now, fermented food is the same type of, you know, like kimchi or sauerkraut. Basically, you have a lactobacillus and you're actually fermenting it outside of the body first, mm-hmm. right? And what that does is it kills off any bacteria in that culture that would cause the food to rot. So right away you have a way to store this for a long period of time without the food spoiling because the lactobacillus basically overpower and create an environment that the bad stuff can't grow. But Mm -hmm. so now you already have a lactobacillus, which is in probiotics as a pill, right? And now you also have a fiber that is fermentable that it can be used also by the bacteria that are already in your gut. So you're having the beneficial effects of the probiotic lactobacillus as it passes through, but you're also giving fuel to those beneficial bacteria that like fiber to help rebalance the gut at the same time. So instead of taking just the pill, the fermented foods give you both benefits, what's called the prebiotic, right? Mm-hmm. The, the concept of the prebiotic, which is helps grow the stuff in the first place, um, and the probiotic, which gives beneficial effects as it passes through. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just really thinking about that idea because as you were saying, you, you have the best of both worlds. And I, I was seeing uh, one study, I was looking at how much 
how many bacteria cells because that's how they sell these probiotics, right? You know, this one has one million, this one has uh, five billion different things. But they looked at like a serving or an ounce of sauerkraut. I forget what it was. And it was something like 10 trillion (laughs) bacteria cells, ridiculously more than what you get in those pills. Yeah. And, And a little bit of fermented food goes a long way. Yeah. Would you recommend like uh, every single day just someone should eat a little bit of fermented food? I mean, they used to use it more as sort of a condiment that went with other meals. Yeah. A lot more. That's how I use it. Honestly, I, I always I always have a jar of kimchi. I love it personally. I mean, I don't I'm like, oh, it's, it's healthy for me. I just actually think it's fantastic. So I, I eat it probably. I don't know. I eat it probably about three or four times a week. I think it depends on your situation and you got to be careful. You know, if you're, if you're new to it, you know, I wouldn't eat a whole jar of kimchi. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. a big load and your body's going to, you know, freak out and maybe cause a little bit of a uh, gastrointestinal distress to you. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think a little bit used as a condiment, especially uh, a little bit goes a long way. And sure. I, there's no harm in eating it daily. I, I love this stuff. So. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and you, you mentioned butyrate, which yeah. is a bacteria. They, they turn the fiber into butyrate, which is a, the short-chain fatty acid, which is also commonly found in butter. I think you said it's like 3% of butter yeah. is butyrate. So is butter a good food for your gut and your bacteria? Not really. Um, honestly, <laughs> because the, the amount that's in butter, I, the point was in that, that it was our our uh, external sources of butyrate are very, very low um, as far as yeah. really we get most of it from eating fiber. Oh, um, interesting. That was the point I was trying to make in that. Okay, very cool. Uh, so anything else? Uh, you mentioned this whole uh, sort of the gut is the second brain, and I think that might be a brain-centric way of looking at things. Why don't we just call our brain the, the second gut? Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> could, could you talk about this whole uh, neurotransmitter action, the, the bacteria is producing this? And I, I believe you quoted some studies looking at how it uh, increasing the supply of the good bacteria was able to reduce anxiety in people. So yeah. uh, what's... What are some of the different things that we've been seeing there? So we really have a very strong connection from the the gut to the brain through the vagus nerve, especially. And there's a very strong sense of interoception. I believe you and I talked about before, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically the state of our body. Many of us can, can, you know, when we're nervous, you know, that whole butterflies in the belly or, you know, people can actually have a gastrointestinal distress from, you know, when they're going up to give a presentation or something they're really, really nervous about, right? So it goes both ways, though. So the state of our gut can actually influence our brain, and more and more we're finding how this happens. So just think about it all as a threat response, and it makes sense. If there's dysbiosis and some bad stuff going on in the gut, that will be communicated through up through the vagus nerve to the brain, like, hey, all is not well down here. In any type of threat, what is our general response to threat? Flight or fight response, right? Even if it's a low mm-hmm. level. And so the ability, to, and we know that people are, that are under chronic stress uh, have anxiety. That's a, anxiety, all anxiety is, and I'm not trying to simplify it too much, is a protective response, right? So there's something in our environment that's threatening. Our brain not be able we may not be able to pick it up, but we want to be on a heightened state of alert, basically, to um, protect us from a perceived state of threat in our environment. It's not so fun for us, though, with people to suffer from chronic anxiety. And one of the 
one of the things that was thought now to contribute to that is um, dysbiosis and problems in, in the gut. So, you, like I said, it's easy for us to, all of us have experienced that um, upset stomach due to a stressful situation or nervous stomach, so to speak. And so it's with the amount of neurons and the connections between the gut and the brain, we now know that it goes the other way as well. So it shouldn't be surprising if you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I can remember one time early on when I started to, you know, look at the quality of food I was eating and whatnot, uh, I was just really rushed and ate this, uh, I believe it was a pork chop, like super quickly, and I was thinking about something else, and then my stomach just felt horrible after that. Uh, so it kind of speaks to this idea that, you know, contrary to our fast-paced culture and all the stuff we have to do, but really do, you know, sit down and relax as we're eating our meals is just going to aid in digestion, probably help out the bacteria, you know, lower anxiety levels and do a whole bunch of other things we're not even aware of yep. rather than just, you know, thinking we're downing some fuel and we're on the move. Well, that's how <laughs> all we, the time. And that goes that whole mindful thing. You know, there's this whole, yeah. you look on the web, people talk about mindful eating now, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it's like what we all should be doing, right? And not thinking about a billion other things going on. Right, right. All right, well, we're coming up upon an hour. Um, is there anything else you felt that really, in everything we talked about here, is kind of a missing piece for people? Well, you, might I want mean, to we, in on? you know, we would have to do like a three-hour podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Basically>, <laughs> we could Yeah, the, I think the, um, the sleep issue that in the circadian disruption – from our modern environment is huge. And I have a whole chapter on that. I think that's, that's a missing piece for a lot of people. Um, yeah, is, is that, and, um, you know, I, I think just, just to reiterate, you know, stop thinking so much about macronutrients and just eat real food, I eat, you know, learn to cook food, try to get locally sourced stuff. It tastes better and it reconnects you with the process of eating, you know, actually making your food and making time for it to do that. We need to prioritize that kind of stuff, but gosh, there's so much that we can go into. Um, but I'd be, you know, if you want to have me back on at any time to talk about any other topic, I'd be happy to, there's, there's a ton more to, to cover. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, Highly recommend everyone pick up the book, Strong Medicine. Like I said, I'll have uh, links to that in the show notes and everything, or you can probably just search for it if you want to find it. As I said, it, it, as a writer myself, it kind of makes me jealous, and you're able to take complex subjects and make them very readable. Uh, so I think, it, as I said, it dives in a lot of details but gives you the big picture. So it's a very great read, and I'm only a third of the way through it. So uh, where where can people go to find more from you, Chris. Oh, so right now I'm doing a, a blog on uh, Dragon Door. I call it the Strong mm-hmm. Medicine blog where we're getting, it's kind of a mix mixture of strength stuff that Marty's getting out and topics related to the Strong Medicine book uh, that I think are, you know, interesting from a variety of different writers. Um, so that's on the Dragon Door website. And really, uh, that's kind of my uh, internet uh, <laughs> to speak of because I have too many things else going on but yeah and you know obviously the book um, through Dragon Door and on um, Amazon 
Excellent, excellent. Well, once again, highly recommend people check that out. And, uh, yeah, the the Strong Medicine blog, a lot of great articles on there. So I'll have links to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I think we're missing a, a, a really good writer that I want to have on that blog, uh, this guy named Logan, right? <laughs> All right. I'll have to write an article for <laughs> you guys. That would be great. <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome, Logan. It's a pleasure. All right, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Be sure to tune in for our next episode. We'll have another exciting interview. And as always, if you could be so kind, leave us a review on iTunes. That just helps other people find out about us and help spread the word about this solid health information, all these great people we're learning from. Thanks, everyone.